Over the course of our marriage, Megan and I have tried to discipline ourselves to eat at the table together. Now, it's probably a sign of the times that I even have to say that, that it requires discipline and intentionality to eat together, to dine with each other each evening, but it does. It takes quite a bit of discipline, it takes quite a bit of intentionality, because we all know that we live in just this chaotic, frantic world, living chaotic, frantic lives. But we try at the end of that day, at the end of the frenzy that is most of our lives, to to come and with our two girls, sit there with the dog locked outside and have a meal together. Because you know there's something about when you sit down there with your family at the table that it just lets you know that we're okay with one another. That regardless of who's not okay with you at work, regardless of how bad you may have thought you blew it that day, Regardless of how out of control your schedule seems to be, when you come together and you eat together at that table, you know that that person is right with me. There is an intimacy that comes together. There's a, there's a conversation that takes place that at that table just allows all of the world, if it's not more than 30 minutes or an hour, to fit together and to just make sense. It's a place in which you come and you remember that the priorities that you've been worried about all day, those things that you've been anxious over, when you look across the table and there is your little girl, you remember there's things more important than what I face today. That those things are going to come and they're going to go, they're going to seem like a crisis and then they're going to pass away and we're going to forget them all together. But those little girls, that wife that's in front of me, they're with me to the end. They're with me to the end. And regardless of how people may think of me and people may receive me or people may criticize me, I come to that table and it's a refuge. It's a refuge because my family, they just receive me as dad. They just receive me as husband. And y'all, there is something powerful in that, isn't there? There is something powerful in knowing that whatever takes place today, I've got family I'm going home to tonight. I've got a table that is waiting for me where I can join together in love with my family. What we're going to see this morning is that the Lord Jesus has established a table like that. The Lord Jesus has established a table like that for his disciples so that as we come out of this frenzied world, as we come out of our places of sin and rebellion, of discouragement and of being overly busy and wrong priorities, that there's a place where we can gather. It is the Lord's table so that our priorities might be reset, so that our hearts might be recalibrated, so that we might realize that with our church family, regardless of what all has taken place, we are right with God and we are right with one another. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to begin this morning in verse 26. When you get to Matthew 26, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Spurgeon said that the, that the pastor's favorite chorus was the sound of Bible pages turning in the church. Isn't that a beautiful sound? Let's read God's word together. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So if you'll remember where we are in Matthew 26, Jesus has gathered his disciples together for one final meal. This is the famous Da Vinci painted Last Supper. That he has brought all of them together for one final meal. And it is merely hours before he will stand before a public tribunal and Pontius Pilate and be condemned to go into the cross. That by the very next night, he will not be breathing any longer. That the Son of Man will have died. And so you can imagine the intensity of that night. He has already revealed that there is a betrayer among them. That one of the twelve that are there that night sharing that meal with him is going to turn him over and betray him. You can imagine, they know that the cross is lurking in the shadows, mere hours away. And they all understood full well that this wasn't just going to be hardship for Jesus. This was going to bring hardship into their lives. This wasn't just going to be the rejection of Christ. This was going to be rejection of Christ and all of his followers, all of his disciples. So they are grappling with the thought of a betrayer. They are grappling with the reality of Jesus' crucifixion. And they are grappling with the reality of their own suffering, which is now impending. Now, the supper that they are sharing is not just any supper. It's the Passover. It's the Passover. It is the most significant festival in the life of Israel every year. That that the population of Jerusalem has swollen to five times its ordinary Passover, or its ordinary population. Family units of 10 to 12 would come together and they would have this meal as a time of remembering God's faithfulness to their ancestors. They came together and they, it was a memorial of what God had done in the past, that, that they were under the oppression of Pharaoh and God delivered them from Pharaoh. That God had sent ten plagues upon Israel, including the final and greatest plague, which was the angel of death, but all of his people that had painted their doorposts with the blood of the lamb. The angel of death had passed over them and they had been allowed to be delivered out of Egypt. It is a reminder to them that as their ancestors came up to the edge of the Red Sea and it appeared as though the greatest military in all of the world was bearing down on them and sure to slaughter them, that the Lord parted that sea and they walked across it as though they were standing on carpet. It's a reminder to them that as they got out into the wilderness, they said, Moses, you have brought us out here to die. Moses, you have brought us out here that we may starve to death, that we may die of thirst and as thirsty as they were God poured water out of a rock as hungry as they were that God rained down bread from heaven providing protecting fulfilling and satisfying their every need and so they came together each year for over a thousand years to celebrate what God had done and it gave them the assurance that if God did this for our people one time If God provided so miraculously and so powerfully for our ancestors, then we can have certainty that the promises that he has given to us, the protection and provision that he has offered to us, will be just as clear, just as certain, just as obvious. But now what we have is Jesus doing something that is blasphemous if he is not God. 
Jesus is doing something that if, if he is not truly the deity in human flesh, then it is blasphemous. For what he does is he reshapes the shape of the Passover. He redefines what it means. He changes the memories that are to come. See, what Jesus teaches the people of Israel is that the Passover is not just a time to look backward. The Passover is also a time to look forward. That the Passover, sure, it, takes, it brings you back in the certainty of the Red Sea and the certainty of the manna and the water out of the right. It brings you to all of those things. But, but it points you even more so forward, forward to the Lamb of God that was yet to come, forward to the provision of God from you for your sin. And so as God, as God had delivered his people from the tyranny of Pharaoh, now he would deliver his people from the tyranny of sin. As God had brought them freedom from the oppression that they had known in the hands of their captors, now they would know the freedom and the deliverance of the oppression of the grave and of sin and of death. And Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, would deliver Deliver them from their captors. That is, God had given and signed the code upon uh, the covenant on top of Mount Sinai. Now, on top of Mount Calvary, Christ Jesus would seal the new covenant, the greater covenant, with His own blood. Originally, the Lord, the Lord had allowed the angel of death to pass over Israel because their doors, their homes, were covered in the blood of the lambs. But now, because Christ has come, because the cross is imminent, because the resurrection is certain, those people in the new covenant, those who are in the new church, those who are God's people now and forever will be delivered from their sin, delivered from their grave, delivered from their death, because they are covered in the blood of the Lamb. And so Christ is taking this most important memorial in the life of Israel, this festival in which they celebrate God's faithfulness and God's certainty and God's promise keeping. And Christ is advancing it forward to show that it was pointing forward to a new exodus, pointing forward to a greater Passover lamb. For over a thousand years, they would come together and they would celebrate this. But Christ is giving them a new memorial and he is giving it for at least two purposes. For at least two purposes. First, there is an immediate purpose and then there is a future purpose. In the immediate, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is to come. He had told them in Matthew chapter 10 that he was sending them out as sheep among the wolves. He had told them that their own families would rise up against them and oppress them and kill them. That Father would turn against son, and mother would turn against daughter, that they would be brother, would turn against brother, and that they would even be offered up for death by their children, believing them to be blasphemers. And that Jesus knew that Peter was going to be denying him, that his other disciples were going to be abandoning him, that Judas was going to be betraying him, and that they would feel the threat of their own lives. And so what we have Jesus doing here, in one sense, in the immediate sense, is he is pre-explaining what is to come to his disciples. He's telling them what's to come ahead so that he might go ahead and set their expectation. You know, before I had surgery, I remember what the doctors did, is they would come in and they, they were talking to me, and they laid out for me every gruesome detail of what was to come. Every detail of what my recovery was going to be like, every detail of how I was going to feel and how long it was going to take and how hard it was going to be. And I remember thinking, well, thank you, doc. I, I, 
I appreciate the encouragement as I'm getting ready to go under here, but I could have done without all of that. But I remember, I realized later on why they did that. They did that so that when I came out of surgery and I felt so bad, when I came out of surgery and I was hurting and I came out of surgery and I was discouraged, that I wouldn't think that things were out of control. They were setting the expectation for me so that I wouldn't look at my situation and think, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. They were telling me what to expect so that I would know I'm on schedule. I'm on track. Right now is not good, but better day is coming. Right now I hurt, but there is a pain-free day coming. They were setting the expectation for me for a hard thing so that I would be able to persevere and endure and know that something better was on the other side. That is what we have Jesus doing here for his disciples. Jesus is letting his disciples know, yes, a hard day is coming. Yes, suffering and pain, they are imminent. Yes, you are going to know the difficulty and the hardship of betrayal. But don't think for one second that I'm out of control. Don't think for one second that this is me losing a grip on God's will for my life and God's will for you. That it's going to look out of control. It's going to look as I hang on that cross, as I cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's going to appear as though everything is out of control. But you can rest assured, I am telling you this day what is going to happen on that day. That you can know that not one minute, one second of this is outside of my sovereign grasp. That is, the Lord Jesus knew how he would be murdered before his murderers even knew how he would be murdered. And he gave himself up willingly and he's one of his disciples to understand that. And so there is an immediate purpose which is for the preparation and the strength and perseverance of the disciples. But there is also a future purpose. A future purpose. That is that Jesus, like the Passover, had come every single year so that they they might be reminded of God's faithfulness. Now Jesus was establishing a new ordinance for the church. Something that, that we would do regularly with one another so that we might come together wherever we are, whatever we're facing, whatever we're enduring, and remember Christ. Remember the sacrifice that was made. Remember the offering that was made on our behalf. Remember that Christ's blood was shed for us, that his body was broken for us. That you might be in a place and you might feel like nobody cares, the Lord has abandoned you, the Lord has forsaken you, but then you can come to the table and remember Christ. You might feel as though you are lonely, like you are the only one in your place that loves God, but then you can come together with the people of God and you can remember Christ. Christ together, that you might be in a place in which you're persecuted. You might be in a place in which you and your church family is under the, the rule of a, of a tyrannical government that might bring oppression into your life. Or you might go to a high school, even here, where you are mocked for what you, are, you believe, or to a college that wants to make you feel as though you're a fool and dumb for what you believe. You might work in a place in which you are constantly subjected to anti-Christian sentiments. And you might work in a place in which any man that wants to live with right, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is looked down upon and mocked. But, 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 as hard as all of that is, there is a place of encouragement for you to go. 
There is a place in which you can go and remember what Christ has done. There is a place in which you can go and join in with other Christians facing the same plight and the same strife in their life. There is a place where you can go in which the persecuted come together and remember the reason it is worth it. And it is the Lord's table. That there is this future purpose in the mind of Christ that there is a table in which his people will constantly, consistently come and gather around to remember him and so press on. So as we look at the Passover itself, what we need to understand to really understand the power of what Jesus is saying is that there are some very well-established patterns. We might call them like a liturgy, if you're familiar with kind of a, a liturgical church background. So there was a set thing, that, a set way that the Passover had been taken for generations, for centuries. First, you would have the 10 to 12, the family unit, they'd be gathered there and they'd be gathered around the table. And the head of the household would take a single loaf of unleavened bread and he would break it and he would distribute it among all of those in the household, making sure that every single person that was there was able to eat of that single loaf. Then he would hold it up and he would say this every time, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they left Egypt. And they would have a bowl of bitter herbs in the center of the table to remember the bitterness of that moment, the bitterness of what it was like to be under the oppression of Egypt, the bitterness of what it was like to be pursued by the Egyptian army. And they would all take and they would dip that bread, that unleavened bread, in that, those bitter herbs, and they would eat it together. But Jesus changes this, doesn't he? Jesus changes this. Jesus assigns new meaning to the bread. And what you need to know is this is blasphemy if Christ is not God. If you would imagine, this is a Jewish, these are devout Jewish people. And they are sitting there taking the most sacred of the Jewish holidays. This would literally be like coming into us this morning as we take the Lord's Supper and reassigning meaning to what's going on. It would, it would dumbfound us. It would astound us. We would, it would perhaps even anger us. Maybe you just want to fight somebody, right? Jesus doesn't say what was traditionally said. He says, this is the bread, my body, which is broken for you. But from now on, as you gather together at the table, as you come together to, to remember what, what God has done, God's faithfulness to his people, God's promise keeping to his people, God's provision and protection for his people, what you need to remember is more than the bread of affliction is that I am the bread of affliction. I am the one who will endure the bitter cup of God's wrath poured over me at the cross. So as you come together, as you hold up the bread, remember that you are bound together by my body which was broken for you. My body which endured the stripes so that you may be healed. My body that was scourged at the pole. My body that had the crown of thorns upon my brow. My body that endured the spear in my side and had the spit of soldiers running down my skin. My body that was swollen with the hide ripped off of my back from the scourging. Remember, this is my body which was broken for you. It is an astonishing moment and an intense night already. 
which Jesus comes and he says the greater picture of God's faithfulness to you is not the, your escape from Egypt. As wonderful as that is, the greater picture of God's faithfulness is that he has provided the Christ. He has provided the Messiah. He has provided the one by whose stripes you shall be healed. Now the bread was unleavened for a very specific purpose. The bread was unleavened because the Egyptian people, as the ten plagues had come upon Pharaoh, and nine of those times Pharaoh had hardened his heart, God's people would prepare and there would be no opportunity for them to escape. But then, after the tenth plague, after the night of the Passover, Pharaoh relents. God softens his heart and Pharaoh relents. He is broken over the loss in his own household. And he relents. And the people of God, they have no time for preparation. They have no time to make bread and to collect water and to get all the supplies that an entire nation of people with old and young, with, with babies and moms and teenagers and dads, all of them, millions of them going out into the wilderness, going out into the desert. They didn't even have enough time to put leaven in their bread. They didn't even have enough time to make bread properly. So they just made it the best they could, as fast as they could, and they ran with what they had into the middle of the wilderness. And what you have to understand is this was a remarkable run of faith. We, We think about that story all of the time. But think about how much faith it would have taken for a mom of an infant. We've had tons of new babies around here. And let me tell you what I know about mamas. Mamas will fight to the death over their babies. Alright? You get between mama and the baby, you're going down, son. Now I want you to think. You've got the mamas with these little babies. And you have Moses saying, alright guys, go to the desert. Leave all water. Leave all food. Everything familiar to you. The livelihood of your baby is in your hands. And now you have to run with the baby into the wilderness? You have to run with the baby into the desert? How will they drink? How will they eat? How will they survive? How will you drink? How will you eat? How will you survive? Brothers and sisters, it was remarkable faith in the provision of God for the people of Israel to run into the midst of the wilderness. As often as they come to the table, as often as we gather together at the Lord's table, we are to remember the faith by which we must live for Christ. The faith in which we must depend upon Christ. See, for Israel, eating and drinking became metaphors of faith. Metaphors of faith. That that your life is all in the hands of God's provision. That's what faith is, isn't it? Faith is living at the mercy of God's provision. And so you have these people and they go out into the middle of the wilderness and they say, Moses, how are we going to survive? And all of a sudden, bread falls out of the sky. Moses, what are we going to drink? He hits a rock and water spews out like it's Niagara Falls. 
How are we going to survive? And God says, my people, I will deliver you. I will sustain you. I will guide you by the pillar of cloud in the day and the pillar of fire at night. I will send bread from the heavens. I will send water out of the desert. I will bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. You will not go hungry. You will not fall into despair. You will not live hopelessly because I am your God and you are my people. So in John chapter 6, when Jesus looks and he says, if anyone would be my disciple, let him eat my flesh and drink my blood. What he is saying is if you want to be my disciple, if you want to go where I'm going, if you want to do what I've called you to do, if you want the inheritance that I can offer, if you want the promise of deliverance from the grave and the reward of heaven, then you must place the entirety of your life, the entirety of your faith, your full allegiance into my affliction, into my resurrection. You must bank on me and not yourself, not your wisdom, Nothing that you have, you must bank on me. Eat and drink as I allow you to eat and drink and trust that as the birds in the air have all that they need, that I, a good and promise-keeping God, will ensure that you have all that you need. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you something? Are you living that way? Are you living your life so that it will be lethal if God doesn't come through for you. If the people of God, if God doesn't give them the bread from heaven, if God doesn't give them the water out of the rock, if God doesn't show them how to travel and where to go, the people of God were going to die. But I think in our day, most of our neighbors look in at our lives, they look in at our kids, they look in at our marriages, they look in at our, our standard of living, and they don't see any difference between them and us. The neighbors that we have look into our lives and they see no evidence, no difference by the presence of Almighty and Holy God living in us. They see no difference in the way that we raise our kids and they see no difference in the way that we love our wives and love our husband. They see no difference in the way that we use our resources. They see no difference in the priorities of our life from the priorities of their lives. We are living according to the sense of this world. We are living according to the logic of this world. Brothers and sisters, to live by faith is to bank your survival on the goodness of God. To live by faith is to bank your entire life on God's provision, on God's protection. Are you living like that? The church of Jesus Christ should not look normal in a pagan world. You shouldn't blend into your neighborhood. You shouldn't blend into your high school. You shouldn't blend into your college. You shouldn't blend into your workplace. You should look weird, man. You should look weird. You should stand out. You should live as one who is at the mercy of the provision of God. People should say, why do you give away like that? Because God is my God and I am his son. 
Why do you raise your kids like this? Why do they not have all of these things? Why do they talk like that? Because God is my God and I am his son. Why is it that you approach your ambition and your career as you do? Why is it that you're approaching college like you do? Why are you going to the mission field instead of going on vacation? It is because God is my God and I am his son. Brothers and sisters, we must live our lives as though we will be dying if God doesn't come through for us. That is the picture of faith. That is what we remember as we gather together at the Lord's table. The Lord provided his son. The Lord provided the bread of affliction broken for me. And if the Lord provided deliverance from my sin, he can provide the goodness for my family. Brothers and sisters, are you living by faith? Are you living by faith? Are you willing to run into the middle of the wilderness, into the middle of the desert with your entire family? Because you trust God. I think about B.F. and Jane Cofield, so faithful to sit right here front and center. They were missionaries for 25 years in India, Indonesia, and Tanzania. I know I'm embarrassing them, but I've, I've heard them tell the story about one day, B.F. comes home and Jane's sitting there and she says, God talked to me today. Well, I'm glad. That's good to hear, honey. God said we're going to India. No, we're not. <laughs> I don't think that's what's it's going to happen. In a matter of years, they're in India. Right there. I've heard the story of how they're in Tanzania at the end of their, at the end of their service there. And they, BF has been up teaching on, on top of a mountain with all of the locals there. And he comes down and he tells Jane, Jane, it's time to go home. Okay, well, let's get our things together. No, it's time to go home right now. They pack up all they have and they leave the very next day. And the day after that, he collapses in America with a brain tumor and the Lord is able to deliver them. Brothers and sisters, God is still that God. Do you hear me? God is still the God of the wilderness. God is still the God of the desert. God is still the God of provision, the God of protection, and the God of deliverance. God is still the God of the bread and the wine. God is still that good. God is still that faithful. God is still that powerful. Brothers and sisters, will we stand up and live that way? Will we stand up and live that way? Do you want to experience God? Come to the end of yourself and give Him all that you have. Come to the end of your life and entrust Him. Wherever He tells you to go, just go there. Whatever He tells you to do, just do that. If brothers and sisters, if we would do that, how profoundly different would we be? How profoundly different would our community be? How profoundly different would our church be? At the Passover, there were traditionally four cups that you would take. Four cups that the entire family would share, and each one of them has its own powerful symbolism. But we believe that it was the third cup that Jesus raises up, that Matthew records and all the other gospel accounts record, that he raises up the third cup, and the third cup was called the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. How God had redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt. God had bought them out by his own price, by his own authority, by his own power and might and wisdom. So Jesus holds up the cup. Now, for more than a thousand years, the same thing has been said. This is the blood of the covenant. But Jesus changes that too, doesn't he? Subtle to us, but striking to them. 
Jesus doesn't say this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He says this is my blood of the covenant. And that seems subtle to us, but it is as striking to the first century Jews as it would be if I came this morning and preached and called God Allah to you. For an outsider, it may seem subtle. For an outsider, it sounds like we're talking about God. But for you, you would know the difference. And it would be striking. It would be profound. It would be angering to you, right? Jesus holds up the cup and he says, this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant. When God had established in in the wilderness, in in, uh, Exodus chapter 24, he has given the, the Ten Commandments. They've been smashed because of their worship of Baal. He's given them a second time in Exodus 24. And Moses comes down off of the mountain. And he has 12 altars built, an altar for each tribe of Israel. And there he has oxen, hundreds of oxen uh, slain for the good, for every family, every tribe of Israel represented right right there. And he does something that's kind of strange. It's unprecedented anywhere else in Scripture. In all of the Old Testament, it's the only time. He has oxen slain and all of the blood, he has half of the blood, and he spills it on the altar. And he takes the other half of of the blood and he covers the people with it. He spends sprinkling it and throwing it on all the people of Israel. This is the only time in the Old Testament in which the people of Israel are covered in blood. We know that the blood made them unclean, right? They avoided blood. And yet here, Moses covers all of them in blood, signifying the signing and the sealing of the Old Covenant. What do we have here? Why does Jesus call this my blood of the covenant? Because brothers and sisters, the Old Covenant was sealed with the blood of oxen, but the New Covenant, The new covenant is sealed with the blood of the lamb. That the difference between Egypt and Israel was the blood smeared over the the doorpost. The difference between Egypt and Israel was not that Israel was better. Not that Israel was smarter. Not that Israel was more faithful. Not that Israel was an older nation. The difference was, is they had the covenant of God. They had been covered in blood. And brothers and sisters, that is the picture of us. What is the difference between us and our neighbors? We are not better than them. We are not above them. We are not holier than them. No, Bible says that none are righteous, no, not one. The difference between us and our neighbor is that we have been covered in the blood of the Lamb, that we have been covered in the righteousness of Christ, in the holiness of Christ, to live out our lives by the power of Christ. That is the difference between us and them. And so we come together as stewards of a greater covenant to the table. We drink of the vine. We drink of the one cup together to signify that it is only by your blood that we are redeemed, that we are okay. The people of God are to drink from the cup and remember that their sins have been forgiven. But at the same time, they are to remember that their sins were costly. Their sins were costly. As and that's Exodus scene in chapter 24. They see there and they know the, the expense of all of those oxen. They know the, the brutality of the slaining of all of those oxen. And they are, that blood is covered over them. But it pales in comparison to the cost and the value of the life of the Son of God. 
And yet the Son of God, he is nailed brutally to a cross. He is bleeding profusely to the point of near death. He sweats and blood comes out of, his, out of the pores of his body. So they look to the agony. They think forward in this day. We think backward in our day. And we remember that our sin, our forgiveness, our grace is not cheap. Oh, but how much we have cheapened it now. Oh, how much we have cheapened it now. Now in the church, it is more common for us to to treat the grace of Jesus Christ as though it is a Christian entitlement. We go about our sin, living our lives as much as we want, however we choose to live them, feeling totally justified in the wickedness we already have planned, feeling totally justified in the sexual immorality that we pursue, feeling totally justified in the gossip that we look forward to hearing, feeling totally justified in harboring bitterness and anger and meanness in our lives. And the Lord Jesus offers us the cup and he says, do you not remember how expensive your sin was? Do you not remember the cost of your salvation? Grace is not cheap and grace is not an entitlement. Grace is provided at the expense of the risen Christ. Brothers and sisters, how many times have you come and heard the gospel preached and left knowing you were going to continue in the sin you were going to? How many times have you told yourself It's okay if I do this because I'll get grace. It's okay that I live with abhorrent hypocrisy in my life because I'll get grace. It's okay if I go with them and do what they do because I will get grace. It's okay if I sleep with him or if I sleep with her because I will get grace. Oh, this is a cheapening of grace. This is a cheapening of grace. Brothers and sisters, the Christian does not look to to grace and feel justified in their sin. The Christian looks to grace and feels undone in repentance. Oh, how could I violate such a gracious God? How could I rebel against a God so kind and merciful? Oh, look at the blood of Christ. How can it be that I would live like this? And they are undone by it. They are undone by it. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Grace doesn't allow us to continue in our sins so that grace can abound all the more. Paul says, by no means, by no means, grace beckons us to come to the cross and to die with Christ and to put to death the old self and the flesh that we might be made anew and walk in the glory of the Spirit, walk in the righteousness of the Spirit. This morning as we come to the table, I invite you to come to remember the cost of grace in your life to remember the cost of mercy in your life and to be compelled toward righteousness. As often as you want to go back and look forward to gossip, remember Christ and don't. As often as you want to pursue sexual immorality on your computer screen or wherever else, with whomever else, remember Christ. As often as you want to cut corners financially and rob other people or or cheat your business, remember Christ and be compelled to righteousness. We come to the Lord's table. We are not brought together so that we can continue in sin. We are brought together so that we might be renewed in our commitment to bring glory to Christ in our lives. Don't come casually. 
This is why Paul says some of you have died. Some of you have gotten sick because in, he says this in 1 Corinthians 11. So you have come to the Lord's table and you have not come with a pure heart. You have come knowing you're going to continue in your sin. You have come knowing you're going to continue in your rebellion. No, brothers and sisters, come this morning and repent. Come this morning and offer your life to Christ yet again. It's not insignificant that he... Both loaf, but both bread and cup are singular, right? He doesn't offer everybody at the table a cup. He has one cup that all the disciples are going to share. He doesn't offer everybody at the table a loaf of bread. No, he breaks the bread apart, a single loaf, and he hands it out around. Do you know why? One of the pictures that the Passover painted, and one of the pictures that I think the, the Lord's Supper paints even more powerfully, even more beautifully, is the solidarity among the disciples. The unity that is brought at the Lord's table. That it doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. In their day, it didn't matter if you were a slave or if you were a master. It didn't matter if you were successful in your earthly ambitions or unsuccessful in them. It didn't matter if you were young or old, rich or poor, white or black. It didn't matter. You came together. And at the Lord's table, at the Lord's table, there was unity among you. At the Lord's table, there was equal footing, so much so that the master may very well be serving the slave. And it's the picture of what happens in the body of Christ. That all of us, from all of our backgrounds, some of us Christians for decades, some of us Christians for only months, some of us walking closely with the Lord, some of us desiring to get back there once again, but we come together at the Lord's table and we remember that we have been baptized into one body by one spirit. So in Christ, we are one. We eat of one loaf, we drink of one cup because together we are bound by Christ. This is the time that if you are harboring bitterness towards your brother, you go to them and you seek their forgiveness. This is the time in which if there is anger between you and someone else in the body, you go to them and you make it right. You reconcile those relationships. This is the time that you overlook the offenses that you've been holding on to because Solomon tells us it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. This is the time in which you get past your hurt feelings. You get past your anger. You get past your bitterness with your brother or your sister so that you can come to the Lord's table and enjoy the solidarity that is offered to disciples. Let me remind you that if you are here with your husband or your wife and they are in Christ, that is your brother and that is your sister and you need to be right with them. If you're here with your children, if you're here with your mom and your dad, and right now you're at odds, right now you're harboring bitterness, that is your brother, that is your sister, and today you need to be made right with them. If you're having issues with some other brother or sister in the church, before you take of the cup, before you take of the bread, go to them and seek their forgiveness and be reconciled to them. And the tone of Jesus' final supper will be honored. He says something powerful and strange, doesn't he, at the end? Verse 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this cup of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus kind of makes a strange vow here at the end, doesn't he? He says, I'm not going to drink wine again until we get back together in the new creation. 
I'm not going to drink of the vine again until we all come back together in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. I'm not going to drink that again until I drink it with you. You're going to join at the table. You're going to partake, but I'm going to be holding out. I'm going to be waiting. I'm going to be waiting for the wedding supper of the Lamb when around my table will be many tribes, many tongues, and many nations. When around my table will not be people defiled by the flesh, but full of the Spirit. Around my table will be young and old, rich and poor, slave and master. Around my table will be all of them because I am coming back for you. And so there is another table, a greater table that this table points us forward to. And it is the literal table of Christ and the wedding supper of the Lamb in which we will join in with the chorus of heaven saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And so brothers and sisters, this morning we remember. We remember what Christ has done. We remember how his blood was spilled. We remember how his body was broken. We remember how he endured the nails in his wrists and the nails in his feet. We remember how he endured the scourging that we were owed and that we deserve. We remember that he gave himself up as a ransom for many, but we do not remember without rejoicing. We rejoice. We rejoice that whatever trials we face now, whatever hardship we face now, whatever persecution we know right now, it's only for a little while because there is a greater table coming, brothers and sisters. There is a greater table coming. And on that day, there will only be rejoicing. So rejoice this day. Let's pray together.